now looking back on it, it it feels like it could have taken best picture if it had been released now, like <laughs> up against some of the films that are coming out now. So it was a tougher game, I think, in the 70s and early 80s. Welcome back. This is GC8. I'm Eric, and with me today is... Johanna Evans. We've got two movies. It's a double feature today. First movie we're going to talk about is... It, The Terror from Beyond Space. Now, the 1950s were probably the heyday of science fiction. Science fiction films existed since the very beginning of film. One of... Uh, Edison's first films was Frankenstein. That's kind of science fiction for its day. But after the space race kicks off right after World War II, we really get science fiction on screen. And to this day, there are two decades that seem to be the decades for science fiction films. One is the 1950s and the other is the 1980s. No other decades come close to the output of those two compared to the overall films made. And we'll talk about why the 1980s were that way when we talk about our second film, but start by talking about the 1950s. One thing to keep in mind is that the world was still being explored. In the, on the 3rd of January, the third journey to the South Pole, third ever. So we still haven't finished exploring all of the Earth. And the very next day... The first Sputnik satellite crashed Earth. It was launched the previous year in 1957. So we're already starting to explore space, but we haven't even explored all of the Earth. On January 31st, the U.S. launched its first satellite, Explorer 1, which is a very strange name for a satellite, Explorer, because it's not actually... I guess. I don't know. But I, if the whole Earth hasn't been explored yet, um, maybe it is kind of an explorer. February 2nd, the word aerospace is coined from the words aeroplane and spacecraft, which uh, was the idea that um, Earth's atmosphere and space were one and the same. So uh, a lot of this, these facts were I'm pulling straight off of Wikipedia. And it's interesting how many of them have to do with air, aeronautics, and space. So it, let, it gives you an idea of what was really the big news items of that year. In February 5th, the Tybee bomb, nuclear weapon, uh, it's a broken arrow. It's um, lost off the coast of Georgia. Still to this day, has never been recovered. So... Our exploration of even the oceans is still a little um, thin. February 6th, Manchester United soccer players, football, they're uh, on a plane with quite a number of civilians, and 21 people were killed. It's called the Munich Air Disaster over West Germany on the return flight from the European Cup. 23 people survive, but four of them including the Manchester United manager and a couple of players are in serious condition. This brings up the theme of air disasters, which seemed to be a huge thing in 1958. It was just a lot more dangerous traveling by air back then. 
<laughs> February 20th, a test rocket explodes at Cape Canaveral, Florida. March 11th, a U.S. B-47 bomber accidentally drops an atom bomb on Mars Bluff, South Carolina. What? It doesn't have a fissile warhead, but uh, it's conventional explosive destroy a house and injure several people. Now, it may seem like I went looking for air and space disasters. I didn't. <laughs> or atomic disasters. March 17th, the United States launched the Vanguard 1 satellite. March 26th, the U.S. Army launched Explorer 3. So it's the Army that's really involved in, in space exploration at this point in time. Also that same day, the uh, 30th Academy Award Ceremony took place and the Bridge on the River Kwai wins seven awards, including the Best Picture Award. April 14th, Sputnik 2 was launched. April 21st, United Airlines Flight 736 is involved in a mid-air collision with a U.S. Air Force F-100F jet fighter. 49 people are killed, counting both aircrafts. On May 15th, the Soviet Union launches Sputnik 3. On May 23rd, Explorer 1 ceases transmission. In July, um, Explorer 4 is launched, so we're really sending stuff up a lot. Um NACA, the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, which would become NASA in the fall of 1958, was formed in July. Uh, one of its goals was a base on the moon by 1973. At the time, they were already talking about a Mars mission. It was still considered a possibility that Mars would have been inhabited. You know, there was a lot of talk about the canals on Mars and stuff like that. We did not have a lot of information on Mars. So Mars is a great setting for a lot of 50s sci-fi. August 3rd, the nuclear-powered submarine Nautilus, USS Nautilus becomes the first vessel to cross the North Pole underwater. August 14th, KLM Flight 607E, a Lockheed L-1049 super constellation, crashes into the sea with 99 people aboard. August 17th, the Thor Abel rocket is launched, carrying Pioneer Zero from Cape Canaveral. It fails due to a first stage malfunction. August 14th of 1958, It the Terror from Beyond Space is released. It had the tagline, It Breathes, It Hunts, It Kills. <laughs> Another one of its taglines was, It reaches through space, scoops up men and women, Gorges on blood. The revelation shocker of things to come. And they offered $50,000 by a world-renowned insurance company to the first person who can prove that it is not on Mars now. <laughs> <laughs> well, since you mentioned the tagline that it gorges on blood, the film was originally titled It the Vampire from Outer Space. And when I was watching the film, I noticed a lot of parallels. And so looking up the production notes and discovering, oh, uh, this was not my in my imagination. This was definitely conceived as a space vampire. And there were other space vampire films from around the time period. Planet of the Vampires um, was another film I'll mention, mention later. But uh, the space vampire idea is certainly something that went into the genesis of this. The director, Edward Kahn, 
was an editor for Universal before becoming a director of B sci-fi films. The other films that he directed, I don't think are necessarily worth going into in great detail, but they generally fit this mold of monster creature features with a sci-fi twist, which I'm guessing if he was an editor at Universal, it doesn't say in his credits that he explicitly worked on any of their horror monster flicks, but I'm sure that that had an influence on him as well. The filming uh, for it, it, the, now I want to call it It the Vampire from Outer Space. The filming for It the Terror Beyond Space took place over two weeks in January 1958, which is a pretty quick turnaround time for, for any sci-fi picture. And Ray Corrigan, who played the monster, was unwilling to travel to the makeup artist studio to get the mask properly fitted. So if you take a look closely at the creature's tongue, you'll realize it's actually the actor's chin protruding through the mask that didn't quite fit. So, you know, some some things about this being a budget picture definitely come through, but it sparked the attention of future filmmakers. In the 1950s, there were a lot of movies that used the word terror in the title. There was like The Terror the Terror of Tiny Town, Cry Terror, Terror is a Man, Terror Street. And there were also a lot of its. There was, it came from outer space. It came from beneath the sea. It conquered the world. From hell it came. It was just a very popular shorthand for weird monster. <laughs> there was great public demand for these kind of movies. Everybody talks about this as a B-movie. And I think we need to talk about B-movies for a second. B-movers were usually the second film played on a double bill. All right. But this actually was the A film on a, of the double bill. So it was an A film <laughs> use, if you use the term properly. Mm -hmm. Although we would all agree it is a B film the way we talk about films today. The, uh, the B film that was on the double bill with it was Curse of the Faceless Man which is not a film we're going to talk about very much. I don't know if we'll ever do Curse of the Faceless Man, but maybe, who knows. One source said that it took two weeks to film. John Carpenter, who was a fan of the film, introduced it for Turner Classic Movies and said that it took six days to shoot. I don't know where he got that figure from, but maybe, who knows. It is said to have been inspired by Discord in Scarlet, a short story by Canadian-born science fiction writer A.E. Van Vogt. We'll talk a little more about Van Vogt later, but the story was first published in the December 1939 issue of Astounding Magazine. Screenwriter for this film, Jerome Bixby, would go on to write some of the most memorable episodes of both The Twilight Zone and Star Trek. The musical score by Burt Schefter and Paul Sawtell is almost exactly identical to an one from another B science fiction movie that they scored called Kronos, which came out the previous year. All right, so let's get into the story. Basically, in 1973, the time by which we were supposed to have a, a moon base, according <laughs> to NASA at this time. So later the year that this came out, 
NASA was talking about a moon base by 1973. This film is set in 1973, which was the far future at that time. Mm -hmm. In 1973, the first manned expedition to Mars is marooned. And by the time a rescue mission shows up, the only survivor is Colonel Edward Carruthers, who is believed to have murdered at least one person. The leader of the rescue mission believes murdered the rest of his crew. Um, but his story is that an unknown life form killed his comrades during a sandstorm. And that's the setup. You spend most of the rest of the film on the spaceship, which is both cluttered and claustrophobic feeling, but also very shiny and new. It was interesting kind of getting both sides of that because a lot of sci-fi from the 50s paints space as being this virgin territory that is all like shiny and pristine and that space is this clean and marvelous territory where everything works and, um, and you know, that it was interesting spending time in a spaceship that seemed to both reflect that kind of sensibility about what space is that, you know, thinking in 1973, just at the dawn of space missions, like that, like established and working, but still shiny and new. And that it also had this claustrophobic feeling of the ship isn't like the Enterprise at all. <laughs> um, and the Enterprise comes later. But, um, but other spaceships in 50s sci-fi tend to be much more wide open with flat panels, very minimalist in design. And I think that some of the anxiety that I felt throughout the film was based on the fact that the spaceship seemed to have so many nooks and crannies for people to hide out, get lost in, or, you know, that they're the three layers of the spaceship was something that was new to me or that I, I didn't remember seeing in sci-fi before. And that I think the setting played into the story much more than typical sci-fi movies from this time period, as far as I remember. I've seen a lot of these 50s and, and 60s sci-fi where the sleek silver rocket is used and a lot of times they don't really take into account that there wouldn't be a lot of space on that kind of spaceship. This movie does, and it's all vertically laid out like it would be. Like, you would have very little space horizontally, but vertically you would have floor after floor after floor, which is kind of the way they did it with this. And so they, you literally got to go up a ladder to get to the next floor, up a ladder or down a ladder. So I, I really liked the layout and the claustrophobic set design did really help the film. It was interesting that there were female crew members, which is not something you get. We didn't have female astronauts. Now they did, they were in charge of like fairly domestic duties on the ship. Well, so I'm glad you brought this up because this was another piece of this space movie that I, you know, kept doing double take after double take, which was how many weapons they had on the ship. And like, I know that they were going to retrieve someone basically for a military tribunal. And so it, you know, it, it made sense for them to have some weapons, but 
I was surprised by the combination of how many weapons they had on the ship and the fact that there were women crew who were, I mean, basically like nurses or, you know, like, I mean, sort of playing similar roles that they do in the Star Trek universe of, you know, support staff. But I think what surprised me is that it was clear, like the rest of the crew seemed like they were military. Like no one used, you know, officer names. It wasn't like they acted like they were in the military, but they had the weaponry as if they were, you know, they had grenades. Like I, I would just grenades in space was a very new thing for me. <laughs> so, so that combined with having women crew, I felt was surprising and interesting that the, that the women were included in what seemed to be a military mission, which would have been unusual on the ground, like let alone in space. Remember, the, the leader of the mission they, that they're bringing back is a colonel, Colonel Edward Carruthers. So they do have military ranks. Not a lot is said about the military. That's what I meant. Yeah, it's not, it's, it's not like full metal jacket in space. It's <laughs> Let me add a little perspective that when I was young, growing up in the 1970s, as we mentioned in our intro to this movie, NASA and the exploration of space was a military thing. It was a Cold War mission. From the 50s to the 70s, it slowly waned and became more scientific. By the 80s, it was so much more on the scientific end of things that when President Ronald Reagan had suggested a space-based missile defense system, which was called Star Wars, it was hugely controversial because it was about, oh no, they're militarizing space. Well, space was already militarized from the very beginning. You know, that's what the space race was all about. But perceptions had changed. For a long time, it's been about science. We are slowly, I think, at the beginning of seeing it moving back in the other direction. As of the year that we're recording this podcast, a space force, a new branch of the military has just been formed. So who knows what's going to happen. But I think that we may have slightly different perceptions about whether or not weapons would have been carried into space. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's more that it was very much on the ground type weapons. Because, you know, in sci-fi of this time period, like you do see like laser blasters or like sci-fi style weapons that you think would be used in space. But grenades seem like dangerous to the people throwing the grenades. You know, like you don't want to blow a hole in your ship. And it's something... I mean, when we move on to the second film in our double feature, we'll get to this. But I think I was surprised to see bullets and grenades in space, knowing that that really wouldn't work. Like, you know, if you blew a hole in the spaceship, that would be bad for everybody. And that was what was surprising is not the presence of weaponry, but the presence of like on the ground infantry kinds of weapons was unusual. I'm always surprised by how much we take for granted about what we know about space and space exploration now. When some of the first astronauts came back from lunar missions and stuff like that, they, they had to go through decontamination mm -hmm. as if they could bring back a virus from the moon. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I do know that both Soviet cosmonauts and U.S. astronauts knew that firearms and stuff like that was probably not what they wanted to take, but they were armed with machetes and knives and things like that. I have heard that guns have been taken into space in the past. 
not sure why or how. And I think that they were firearms that weren't based on gunpowder, but on um, other technologies like compressed air and stuff. Mm-hmm. Anyway, on the one hand, the the women in this, they were scientists. It mentioned that, you know, but they also were some, there were this weird hybrid scientist slash flight attendant, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like they would get coffee and... And operate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and operate. Let's get to the, the creature itself. A lot of people, myself included, think that this is an awesome movie with one major exception. <laughs> the creature is such a... A it's a guy in a rubber suit. Mm-hmm. It's a shame that they show the creature so much. In our second film, we'll talk about with much more advanced technology and stuff like that. They still don't show the creature quite as much. However, in this, they show the creature. He's right there. It's a guy in a suit, and uh, and it's there's not a lot of hiding that fact. It was unusual to have a creature from Mars who had fur. Not just that he's in a rubber suit, but it's actually very much like a gorilla suit. At some point, they discuss the possibility that the creature actually has devolved from a more humanoid type being that perhaps had had existed on Mars in a civilized, working, technologically advanced society that had somehow fallen apart to the point that these creatures had devolved. It reminded me so much of other tropes in classic Victorian horror, like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, or the island of Dr. Moreau, or Dracula, or Frankenstein, this idea of humanity devolving into something animal. And so, like, on the one hand, it's like, this doesn't belong in space. And then on the other hand, it's like, this is exactly like what creature features are all about, is this fear of humanity possibly falling into that. I think what's interesting is that from the perspective of the crew members in the beginning, they're all horrified that their fellow astronaut had killed like 12 people and that they're really like on edge and, you know, kind of out to get him and won't believe what he says. And then it turns out that the the real creature may also be the same kind of like was civilized, devolved into being a savage beast that kills everything. And anyway, that was, I I agree that the, the rubber gorilla suit makes it visually anticlimactic, but as a concept of what the creature is, is was kind of interesting to unpack. It didn't seem as gorilla-like to me. I, I, I thought maybe it was a little more reptilian, but whatever. It was definitely not the film's strong suit. The film's strong suit is the sense of claustrophobia during a space travel journey. There's nowhere to go. You are stuck there with this creature, and that's part of what makes it so terrifying. There is no place to escape to, you know? So they're going to have to, you know, kill or be killed here. It was interesting watching this during the age of the coronavirus and seeing creature feature and like contagion kind of blend together a little bit that the 
the creature that what it does is causes cellular collapse and dehydration by sucking all of the water out of their body. And it's an interesting layer to add on to what the creature does, that it's not just that it's out to kill everyone, that it like has a purpose and that that purpose is almost like a disease or a virus that, you know, it kills people in a very scientific kind of way. And I think one of the things that worked well, you know, the the creature was not very scary, but what it did to the crew members was scary. And that seeing the crew members like with their eyes all drained of, you know, with the circles under their eyes and kind of zombified and like one of them's clearly dead. And I love the shot where, you know, there's one of the characters is standing in front of a grate and then suddenly this arm <laughs> falls down behind him. And I like had to rewind to watch it a couple times because I was like, oh, that's so that's so classic. That's so great. They find one character who seems to be like still partially alive. And for a long time, they hold out hope that they'll be able to rescue him somehow. And then one of the characters that they do bring back alive goes nuts. He goes berserk on on the other crew members. Those pieces right now seemed interesting scarier maybe than they would at another another time. We can talk more about that when we get to the next film. One thing that I liked about this is that while the science was sometimes bad, like, you know, the radioactive core is breached and, you know, the, <laughs> yeah, everybody's exposed to radiation. But, you know, um, some of that may have come from the general public's ignorance about radiation at the time. But I do like how they try just about everything they try try guns and grenades and electricity and fire and everything against this creature and nothing nothing stops it it seems like they think of just about every way they had to get rid of the creature overall my final takeaway on this is that i liked it I didn't love it. We talk about being a B movie. I give it about a B. It's not an A movie. It's, you know, but I liked it better than most, you know? Yeah, I liked that it kept moving and at regular intervals, there would be a new complication or as you said, like a new way that they couldn't kill it. And that I, so I really liked the pacing. It's, you know, a good tight 68 minute film and which is the right length for, for the story. I think that there were enough cool visual effects for the time period that it was interesting to see, like there was a great sideways shot of of them climbing out of the spaceship, you know, and walking. And it's very easy to imagine like, oh, they just like turned the camera, but it was still cool. And I imagine for the audience at the time, it would have, it would have seemed really well done or like, oh, that's so awesome. Yeah, it seemed really re realistic. I. I was uh, impressed with that. Okay. You want to introduce the next film? We we were delighted to discover that this uh, beloved gem from 1958 maybe had some influence on one of my favorites, and I'm sure also one of Eric's favorite sci-fi films of all time, Alien 1979, which drew a lot of inspiration from 
a variety of of different sci-fi films. In, in fact, the screenwriter is quoted as saying that he didn't steal the idea from one particular film. He stole it from every film. And so excited to talk about it, the terror from beyond space, side by side with Alien and to examine its parallels. I have some perspective on this. I did not <laughs> see it in the theater because I was a child and I was a child whose father took him to see Jaws, which had come out a couple years earlier and was completely traumatized by that. And so my mother would not let my dad take me to see Alien in the theater. It's funny you mentioned that because supposedly that is how O'Bannon, the screenwriter, pitched it to Fox was to say, it's Jaws in space. So if you said you couldn't handle Jaws, then Jaws in space would not have gone very well at your age. I was also a big fan of science fiction. And so uh, I had really wanted to see it. But my dad had told us a story when he got back from it that he saw a grown like firefighter covering his eyes during it. <laughs> it was a pretty terrifying film. But first, let's give a background to the year 1979. In January, the state of Ohio agreed to pay $675,000 to the families of the dead and injured at Kent State. That, of course, was over a protest over the Vietnam War. So that was still a thing. To me, I have memories about, you know, Vietnam from my earliest memories, but it still seemed pretty long ago, but it really wasn't at that time. This year, 1979, maybe it's because I was nine years old and getting ready to turn a decade old that it seems to me now as the beginning of modern times. But some of the things that happened then also make it seem that way. And January 29th, we have the first major school shooting. Brenda Ann Spencer opened fires on a school in San Diego, California, killed two faculty members, wounded eight students and a police officer. Her justification was, I don't like Mondays. And it inspired the Boomtown Rats song of the same name. February 1st, Ayatollah Khomeini returns to Tehran after 15 years in exile. This will lead to a coup and the Shah of Iran will be ousted and it'll lead to the Iran hostage crisis, which happens much later in the year after our film comes out. But it's important because listeners might remember the film Argo, which was a plan to rescue the hostages under the guise of filming a science fiction film in Iran. That's not as far-fetched as it sounds because, you know, films were generally made in, in Hollywood on sound stages, but not that long before this time, Star Wars came out and it did extensive filming in part of the Arab world and they spent a lot of money and a lot of time filming there. So the idea that the US, which was in a science fiction filmmaking craze at this time, it was not that unbelievable. And the ruse actually worked. Nice little sidebar. Back to events of uh, 1979. February 26th, there was a total solar eclipse. The last visible total solar eclipse in the United States until 2017, just a few years ago. On March 4th, Voyager 1 revealed Jupiter's rings. 
On March 25th, the first fully functional space shuttle orbiter Columbia was delivered to Kennedy Space Center. It would still be a few years before it was launched, but um, it was completed. The Academy Awards April 9th, the Deer Hunter won for Best Picture. Again, Vietnam is still very much in the public conscience. May 1st, Greenland is granted limited autonomy from Denmark. (laughs) That surprised me when I went back to look at this. I thought, whoa, Greenland was just becoming a country, you know? (laughs) The Unabomber, uh, I believe his second bomb, he had the first one was the year before. The Unabomber was not very well known in the public conscious. It's not like now where something like this is all over the media. But again, we're starting to see the beginnings of the society we know today. And then on May 25th, the film Alien was released. Like you said, the screenwriter Dan O'Bannon said that he stole from everything. And to some degree, I think that's true. But there are a few things that really stand out. In 1938, John Campbell's story, Who Goes There, was released in astounding science fiction. This is often considered one of the influences of this. Who Goes There is actually the story that was directly, more directly adapted as The Thing from Another World and John Carpenter's film, The Thing. I read that story, and it is a great science fiction story to this day. I highly recommend it, even though it was written in 1938. In 1939, another story, A.E. Van Vogt's Discord in Scarlet, which I mentioned during It the Terror from Beyond Space, It was the cover story of the December 1939 issue of Astounding magazine. Astounding was a little digest size, maybe it's still in publication, I don't know, digest size short story anthology that you could buy at your newsstand. The story Discord in Scarlet was later published as chapters 13 through 21 of a book called Voyage of the Space Beagle. Those who say that Alien was ripped off of It the Terror from Beyond Space or something like that, there was pro- there might have even been a lawsuit involved. I'm not sure whether it was inspired or ripped off. It was probably more likely directly inspired or ripped off from the Van Vogt story than it was the film. The story involves a creature called, I think it was the Ixtl. <laughs> XTL or IXTL. It was a creature that got aboard the spaceship and they had to deal with it. I have not read that story, so I can't can't comment on that. One of the influences that Dan O'Bannon mentions from time to time is EC Horror Comics. EC stood for Entertainment Comics and Educational Comics. They had two different lines. Their horror comics were particularly good and vivid. And they had like an alien world type one. Their most famous one was, of course, Tales from the Crypt, which we all know today. In 1953, Clifford Simak's story Junkyard was another one. Another one I haven't read. I don't know anything about Junkyard. I just know that it is often cited as a source. And then 1956, Forbidden Planet. I think this influenced both the screenwriter and the director because in Forbidden Planet, they're warned not to land and land anyway. And that small little concept, Dan O'Bannon claims to have lifted from Forbidden Planet for Alien. Also, the look of the costumes and the spaceship and everything, 
from Forbidden Planet, there are some influences there, I think. But still, very clean looking when it comes to the spaceships, which Alien is not. Like, the entire history of science fiction films, um, that was something that struck me about the film Alien, was that for the first time, they're on a ship that looks dirty, and I'll talk more about that when we get into the film, but continuing at the background, 1960, Philip Jose Farmer's story Strange Relations is often cited as one. 1965, there's an Italian science fiction film called Planet of Vampires. That one is very frequently cited by fans of the genre. In 1968, 2001, A Space Odyssey, the influences on of 2001, A Space Odyssey aren't O'Bannon's. They are more having to do with uh, spacesuit design and the concept of the AI, which in Alien is an AI and a robot, that have a mission that the crew cannot override. Mm-hmm. That's a major theme in 2001, and it's a theme in Alien. Okay, now we get into... 1974, the year we're supposed to have, is it 73 or 74? The year we're supposed to have a moon base. 73. 73. So the year after that, Dark Star. Dark Star is a film that Nat and I talked about on a previous episode. Dan O'Bannon wrote the screenplay and it was a John Carpenter film. It is a science fiction film, but it's a science fiction comedy. Ron Cobb also worked on it. It is, in a lot of ways, like the rough draft to Alien. Dan O'Bannon often said that it wasn't very successful. And he said that he wasn't successful at making people laugh, so he's going to try to scare them instead. And so, in a lot of ways, Alien feels like a rewrite of Dark Star as a horror film, which is what I think he always wanted to do because in the encounter with the alien in Dark Star, which is loose on the ship, there's some scenes that are pretty tense in a scary sort of way rather than a funny sort of way. Have you seen this movie? No, I haven't. One thing that I think it shares in common with Alien is that the crew doesn't seem to have some higher mission of exploration or national whatever. They're like doing a job. Like that, that's like something that you, that really comes through in in the film Alien, that they are blue collar workers doing a job and that job happens to be in space, you know? Mm -hmm. So 1974, the other big thing is after Dark Star is released, film iconoclast Alejandro Jodorowsky recruits, (laughs) yes, he recruits Dan O'Bannon to come work on his version of dune like everyone i saw the holy mountain and santa sangre and some of these other films and was blown away by this surrealist the guy was a genius like i don't want to get too sidetracked on dune because dune is a whole nother podcast but of all the people you could get to do dune yodorowsky is such a genius idea and then he recruited other artists like Chris Foss, an incredible illustrator from the UK, and H.R. Giger, uh, the Swiss surreal artist, and Dan O'Bannon as writer. And he brought all these people together in a Paris studio to work on this film, which sadly never got made. It's interesting to see Dune 
coming up again. Now this will be the third film attempted and the second one completed <laughs> of adaptations of Dune. But want to recommend the documentary Jodorowsky's Dune for anyone who wants to learn more about the influence of that project on films like Alien and other great sci-fi. It goes into this uh, relationship between O'Bannon and Jodorowsky and Geiger and how this film that never got made actually made some of that collaboration in Alien possible. In 1974, another thing that happened worth noting is that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre came out. While the Texas Chainsaw Massacre didn't have a lot of influence on the writing of Alien, it had a lot of influence on Ridley Scott, the director. And he wanted to make the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in space. In 1975, Jaws came out. And as you mentioned earlier, it was pitched as Jaws in space to the studios. And that's really an apt description because once again we have a very isolated location in jaws they're basically on a boat in the middle of the ocean and in alien they're on a spaceship in deep space there is no place to run to once again um, also in 1975 david cronenberg who's known for his body horror most people know him from the film the fly but his i think it was his first film shivers came out mm. and shivers doesn't at first appearance have a lot to do with this. It's kind of a, a zombie film in a way, but the way people are infected is by it, it enters uh, through the mouth, this creature. A lot of people have claimed that Shivers looks like an early influence. O'Bannon has denied it, but Cronenberg claims that he has heard through mutual friends that it was an influence. Who knows? In 1977, H.R. Giger released Necronomicon, which was his collection of paintings in book form and included one painting called Necronom 4, which was the model for the alien. The next big event also from 1977 that we have to mention is Star Wars came out. Now, Star Wars and Alien are about as far apart as you can get in the world of science fiction. One, Star Wars is very bright and shiny and very hopeful and very, you know, um, light in some ways. And Alien is dark and Alien did not happen a long time ago in a galaxy far away, but in our future and a not so bright looking future at that. But Star Wars' importance has to do with its success led to the green lighting of lots of science fiction films that would have never gotten a green light otherwise, Alien being one of them. Okay, that's sort of all the background I have going into this. Let's talk about the film itself. More than anything, there's going to be spoilers in this. This film is decades old, so at this point we can have some spoilers, I think. Okay, good. <laughs> The name of the ship is the Nostromo. It's an Italian word that means shipmate or boatswain. And it could be that they, it derives the title just simply from that word. The film is very much about low-level crew members trying to negotiate power and who's in charge when various things happen. But they're all basically at this shipmate level with a captain who is sometimes there to make decisions and sometimes not, and then... Who, who is actually in charge becomes a really important plot point at different times in the film. But 
Nostromo actually is also the title of a Joseph Conrad novel about a guy who is like a charismatic expat who is joining up with a revolution. But the basic plot of it is that there's a cache of silver that they're fighting over on this boat. And so actually, like some of the plot of like, there's this precious substance that some people think should go to the revolutionaries and other people want to use for their own gain. And then some people want to just actually get rid of has the vibe of the book. I, uh, I haven't read it, but from the description seems to have a lot of things in common with alien of crew members fighting over something that is both valuable and potentially dangerous. I don't want to give anything away about aliens. So I won't, I won't say further, further parallels, but that it's, it might be that the, the name of the boat comes from, from this Joseph Conrad novel, which now I'm going to have to go read. <laughs> I haven't read it either. On the subject of Joseph Conrad, as we mentioned, Vietnam was still very much in the public conscious at this time. The week before this movie came out, Yes. Previous weekend, Apocalypse Now came out, which was based on Conrad's uh, Heart of Darkness, right? Yes. Now, one important thing to note is that a lot of the people that worked on this film, Alien, Jodorowsky had previously brought together in Paris to work on Dune, as we mentioned. Well, Mobius was one of them, the artist Mobius, and so was Voss and O'Bannon and H.R. Giger, all of whom contributed to Alien to one degree or another. Well, they also were all part of what was the science fiction art scene of the 70s in France. And they all did work for the magazine Metal Hurlant. Metal Hurlant was, um, when I discovered it as a kid, it was amazing because it had, it was European. So there was like violence and more importantly, sex and nudity, which was in the days before the internet, you know, coming across <laughs> that was not easy. Um, as a kid, getting your hands on a copy of Metal Hurlant, or which w it was eventually brought to the U.S. as Heavy Metal, hmm. which published these amazing comics. In fact, because of these artists who all worked on on this having such close ties to Heavy Metal magazine, Heavy Metal did the adaptation of this film, Alien. The Illustrated Story, which is a 65-page graphic novel of this film, but it came out or was worked on before the film. Hmm. So it has slight differences. And one of those differences is that it opens with a quote from Joseph Conrad's Nostromo. Hey, so full circle. Full circle. <laughs> so it is no accident that it is named the Nostromo. I grew up near the Ohio River, and I used to see barges hauling coal from Appalachia downriver, and they would eventually make their way all the way down the Mississippi River. All day long, there would be barges, big barges, coal barges, and that is what the Nostromo reminded me of. These people were like the guys that worked on barges, and this they're hauling I believe it's iron ore back to Earth or some sort of ore, which is one of the big motivators of space exploration today to eventually plunder natural resources from asteroids and things like that. So it had a very realistic or should I say believable premise for science fiction for the time. I think that was one of the first things that stuck out about it for me. I think I watch Alien just about 
once a year or so. I'll just like go through the whole cycle again. And I hadn't really thought much about the fact that they've clearly discovered life on other planets before. Not this particular crew, but from the way they react, it's not like it, the terror from beyond space, where it's like this might be the first time they're encountering life on another planet. And they, the very idea of that, first of all, they don't believe when the guy says, no, it was this thing and it came and killed us. In this film, they're out there exploring, they find these eggs, they bring them back to the lab, and there's no level of panic or disbelief about any of this. I watched Aliens first. My father somehow thought, like, because of the comedy in Aliens, that it was safer to start with that film, because then also you know that some people survived the first film. <laughs> so, so he introduced me to Aliens first. So when I watched Alien, I never stopped to think about, like, oh, I wonder what other kinds of alien life forms had been discovered at this point. But an important part of the fact that they are commercial like space truckers basically is that clearly there's been enough exploration in space at this time in in this world where scientists have done whatever discovery they need to military has settled their hash and so now it's free for the commercial world the way they discuss the alien it's not in the sense of like they've never seen one or they don't know about them. It's it's actually just more like, okay, what's this particular alien's deal? Like, <laughs> Yeah. That was something I don't think I'd thought about too much. But after watching It, The Terror Beyond Space, it was like, oh, this is a marked difference with this film. Yeah, I remember being struck this time when watching it, how they come across the crashed alien. Mm -hmm. Not the... So this is another thing. None of the alien species have names, right? So <laughs> the alien that sent the warning mm -hmm. they come across it and it's just like no oh, it seems to be a crashed alien you know it's, there's no like oh my god we've discovered an alien species you know oh it's a crashed alien ship you know yeah <laughs> i wanted to say how much i love the casting the cast is amazing just everyone i mean so it's a, it's a small cast since it all takes place on the ship but you've got tom scarrett who plays dallas the captain, mm -hmm. Sigourney Weaver, who plays Ripley, uh, Veronica Cartwright, we know from the X-Files now, and the Invasion of the Body Snatchers remake. She is the navigator. You've got Yafit Kodo as an engineer, John Hurt, the late John Hurt, I should say. He passed away in 2017. The late uh, Harry Dean Stanton, who I absolutely love. There is no movie with Harry Dean Stanton that I won't watch. Like, you know, <laughs> I love Harry Dean Stanton. I went to see Harry Dean Stanton even when he performed. Um, he, he was a musician. So he would sometimes tour with the band The Call. And um, and so I would go see him. I loved him. Passed away in 2017. Very sad. And then really, really late, Ian Holm, who as of the time we're recording this, just passed away this summer. Mm. A lot of people know him better as Bilbo from the Lord of the Rings movies. Did I get them all? Skerritt, Weaver, Cartwright, Stanton, Kodo, Holm, Hurt. And the voice of whoever the voice of mother is and the alien himself who did not live long because he was, you know, very tall and he died of sickle cell disease. His name, I'm going to have trouble pronouncing it, Balahi Badejo, who, yeah, was seven feet tall. And actually, like, since we were talking before about the creature in It, The Terror Beyond Space, 
um, not being amazingly compelling. I think some credit should go to to the guy in the suit for for this film. So snaps to Balahi Badejo, who sadly didn't live very long. The cast is amazing. I just had to throw that out there. And unisex. That was something that was interesting to read about, that the script was written so that anybody could play any character. They did a great job of casting, but it's interesting to think what this film might have been like if Ripley were a guy and the captain were a woman or, you know, like could have been totally flipped. It's unisex in some respects, but I wanted to get into the idea of motherhood. Hmm. You mentioned the, the computer's name Mother. Yeah. Motherhood becomes a theme throughout the Aliens canon. I mean, the most memorable scene in this film that people talked about for years and years and years is this parasite that grows inside the body, which later on Ripley will refer to as impregnation, that explodes out of the chest of characters. I don't know what my take on this is. I just know it's there. Yeah, well, that and I don't think this is something that I picked up on as a woman, but I'm curious to hear your uh, male perspective on this. The face hugger, when it's on the table and they're like poking around in it, like I've heard people say it is extremely suggestive of female sexual anatomy, just like like a vagina out on the table. And that it's not something I picked up on the first several times I watched it until someone said something to me. And then I'm like, oh, that's a very interesting bit of horror in here for some parts of the audience. Well, body horror is a theme that runs through H.R. Giger's work, who designed these creatures. I did not pick up on that. If anything, it seemed almost the other way around. It penetrates through the mouth like, you know. It's a both and situation. It's a vagina that can penetrate the worst of all fears. <laughs> yeah. But all of this is just to say that Giger's work inspires repulsion and particularly repulsion around sexual things naming the ai mother was not an accident and eventually the alien species will find out as a matrilineal a queen and you know lays eggs and all of that not so much in this first film but you know i'm sure we'll talk about more aliens films as we go on o'bannon wasn't too happy they took the script away from it and rewrote it and i don't think that was terrible yeah supposedly the whole subplot with um ian holm being an android is something that was developed by um geeler and the other writing partner shusit yeah who took over parts of it which was interesting because when i was watching the film more than halfway into it and i was like wait like when are they gonna find out that he's an android and i didn't realize how much of the film that piece of information is unrevealed and irrelevant to the story and knowing now that it was something that was added in afterwards by another writer makes more sense about why it doesn't come up sooner i was watching it with someone who hadn't seen the film for a long time and didn't remember that he was an android who like jumped out of his chair and was like what like i've totally forgotten this this is insane i've heard before that walter hill one of the producers came up with that idea i don't know whether it was schuster or hill or Giller. I don't know which one came up with that. I think it adds something to this film because, of course, they would have robots. If they have like AI and they can travel interstellar distances and stuff like that, of course, they would have robots, right? Mm -hmm. And 
suddenly everything he does makes so much more sense. It's a lot harder to buy a human doing that to other humans. You can buy it. There are villains. There are people that do that. And there will be later in the Alien series. But when he talks about things like how beautifully efficient this... Yeah. Suddenly you're like, oh, well, he's a robot. That's why he thinks that. It makes a ton more sense. I think that subplot adds a lot to this film. That's what It the Terror from Beyond Space to me was really lacking, was a good subplot underneath the... We're just trying to get rid of this alien yeah i wonder reflecting on it the terror beyond space whether the audience was meant to wonder if the guy who's accused of murder is actually a murderer if there's any part of that sense of your own people could betray you kind of fear that was supposed to exist in it the terror beyond space but just didn't happen for me when i was watching it carruthers at least some people think he killed the other members of the crew And he's allowed to, like, wander around the ship. Yeah. He's being taken back for a court-martial, but he's not held in a cell and he's not handcuffed or anything like that. And so there was the opportunity for them to explore that further. Mm -hmm. But as soon as we find out that the creature exists, we find out that he was telling the truth. But one of the things I love so much about Alien is first you have the John Hurt character who has the face hugger impregnated and then seems fine for a second. And then within 24 hours has the thing burst out of its chest. And then just as you're starting to settle into this feeling of, okay, it's the crew against the alien, suddenly one of their own again turns on them. And this sense of anybody can be infected by the alien Anyone in your crew can turn on you or not. That keeps the tension high so that you can't just sit easy sort of knowing like, okay, we're all just going to like hole up here in our space shuttle and we'll escape and get rid of the alien. One of the things that I had also forgotten is that they say at some point that four people can't fit in the escape shuttle, which was just kind of an interesting thing about the ship in general, that there is a lifeboat that can't fit. Like, there's only six people or something, and that they can't fit the six people and the crew is, like, just, like, hysterical to me. And also, I mean, it creates this sense of who's going to go down with the ship. The inner human tension that exists in Alien doesn't work as well in It, the Terror Beyond Space. That inner human tension, I think, is what makes this film scarier. The whole idea of you don't know who could be the villain is a theme you see in 50s sci-fi a lot. There was the Red Scare at the time, and Hmm. there was McCarthyism, and you don't know who could be a communist and all of that. And that comes out in a lot of the fiction of the time. The Thing from Another World has that to some degree, and certainly John Carpenter's remake of it brings it out even more. Invasion of the Body Snatchers, multiple films from that time period have that kind of a theme to it. And I think that Alien picks up a little on that. A lot of these things come out more in later installments in the Aliens franchise. So maybe we should leave it for now and come back next week with our review and analysis of Aliens. Sounds good to me. We'll have more creatures, more dark feminine energy, and more tension with androids all next week. All right. So until next time, you can definitely find us in the iTunes store. Give us five stars. Like, review us. Just helps other people find the show. Until next time, this is Eric. And this is Johanna. Signing off. 